All right, welcome to another episode of Startup Impact Radio, the podcast about entrepreneurs and their vision for changing the world. My co-host is Scott Tobe, CEO of Signature Financial Planning, and I'm Joel Reed, CEO of OpenArc. Today, we're talking about angel investing in Pittsburgh with Catherine Mott, who is the founder of Blue Tree Capital Group, Blue Tree Allied Angels, and the Blue Tree Venture Fund. We'll discuss everything there is to know about the startup ecosystem in Pittsburgh, both then and now. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Great, Catherine. So you're one of the pioneers who helped shape where we are today. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you got started with, with Blue Tree. What led you to start that? Oh, thank you. I It, it was um, many moons ago, so go back 20 years. Um, I came from <laughs> the financial industry, banking, and also with a Series 7, 63, 53 licensure to from the banking experience. And I had the good fortune to be self-employed for a little while and exit from that. And um, so think 99, 2000, when there was a big bubble going on in um, in startups in you know, primarily California, and um, had the opportunity to invest in a couple of companies directly. So I didn't know it was called angel investing at that time, um, but um, I was, always particularly a maverick um, leaning into how people will buy in the future or behave in the future and how it impacts, you know, commercial um, opportunities. So it seemed intriguing. Um, So I made my first three angel investments then and um, coming from a background in finance, um, it just didn't feel right to just write a check because I liked what I heard, um, you know, so it really, um, I, I started doing some research when someone said something to me about angel investing. I didn't know that's what I was doing. And so at that time, so think 2001 to there were about 90 professionally managed angel groups in the United States. And, um, I learned a little bit about them. Uh, researched, uh, met with people. I took 18 months to research and visited different people from around the country, primarily Boston, Washington, D.C., and California, and um, learned their practices, learned their best practices. And um, because I was probably around the movers and the shakers at that time um, who I'm seeking help from, right? And um, they're the ones that basically said to me, um, once you get your group up and running, let's all stay in touch with one another and, and discuss best practices. Um, and then it morphed into uh, Kaufman Foundation wanting to support a professional support, uh, a professional development organization, just like the NBCA is for the venture capital. So I was one of the first um, involved in that um, I guess, the making of the Angel Capital Association, the ACA, and um, became, you know, a member of the board. And um, one thing led to another. And we, um, by virtue of that, I was able to watch this whole industry grow tremendously um, from these 90 professionally managed groups to, you know, thousands that also became not just angel groups, but also seed professional seed funds, because I wasn't the only one out there. Everybody understood that 
if you know you should treat your your private holdings your private stock just like you do your public stock and you know and do all the things that you do there you you do your diligence you you diversify you know um it it's it seemed to make sense um to approach it in a professional fashion so um, that's what we did at the ACA. I was very fortunate. I became chairman of the board of the ACA uh, here in Pittsburgh is where my heart is, um, where I saw the ecosystem taking shape at that time. Um, there was just innovation works and Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse. Um, and um, I've now watched it change to I think pre-pandemic, there were like 20 or 30 incubators, accelerators in Pittsburgh and started other angel groups and other types of seed investments and early stage investments um, in, in the city. And um, it's, been, um, it, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience because I've watched how the whole ecosystem changed from this fledgling little startup ecosystem to this powerhouse today that we have, and and I know everybody kind of circles around robotics, but it's not just robotics. We have a very healthy ecosystem with software, with life science, particularly pharma companies being spun out of the universities um, and really, really brilliant people. So um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. So Joel mentioned that, that you helped to pioneer that ecosystem that, that you're talking about. And certainly you, you alluded to parts of that in, in your answer just now. But I'm curious, you know, when you started Blue Tree, what was it like to work in the fledgling uh, ecosystem that, that you mentioned? And, and how much more difficult was it versus now, you know, what, with a more robust ecosystem? Yeah, it was it was indeed challenging. Number one, um, I you know, and and. Fortunately, I'm, I'm blind to it. I came from the financial industry where it's primarily male anyways, right? So this is even more primarily male. And so to want to crack into this industry was a challenge. I did, did meet with um, Joel Adams for when I first launched, and he was very gracious enough to give me some great advice as well. But um, fortunately for me, I came from an industry where I had a lot of business contacts. Um, and so I could build immediately build a network around people who had like-minded interest around creating a professional process and and to creating a diverse portfolio. And so fortunately, I had a quick you know twelve people by by the way all men and um, who were seeking the same thing I was seeking. Um, now, I will tell you this, um, when um, I launched, I had a partner uh, um, and he um, and I started this together. And I think that helped a bit. Um, and um, I also will tell you, we had our coming out party at the um, Andy Warhol Museum and we invited the whole community. And about four years later, I ran into a few of the people who were there and they said to me, um, it might have been five years later, they said to me, yes, we were, we were really intrigued You hear you, you know, that you were going to go out and launch this professionally managed angel group. And we were drinking your booze and eating your food and going, yeah, right. She's going to do this. Right? <laughs> and I guess she showed us. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I thought, well, you know, that, that might be a, 
an underhanded compliment, but I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so. you, you proved them wrong. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was indeed a challenge. Um, but um, we were pretty persistent. And when we had a very, um, I, what can I say, we had a very disciplined process. And I think that's what compelled people to want to come and join us. They would, we would invite people to attend our meetings. Um, we would invite them to participate in, in our due diligence or in mentoring and monitoring the companies. And um, that was attractive to a lot of people because this is a hands-on asset class. And um, by spreading that load based on our own specific talents, we could be more value added to companies. Hmm. That's great. Catherine, at the beginning, you mentioned a discipline process and the doubters that you had at the beginning. If you had to pick one thing that was maybe the biggest challenge that you had to overcome at the beginning of this, what would you point to as being the biggest challenge they had to overcome? Yeah, I mean, it, it truly was an immature ecosystem. I mean, people were not familiar with professionally managed angel groups. And if you said angels, they actually thought cowboys and Indians, right? That, that you know, that um, they're, they're just loose cannons. They don't have a professional process. They don't do the diligence. Um, and they did. They had a notorious, I mean, you know, they had a notorious reputation for just writing checks. And some, so one or two things came out of that. One is they're really dumb and they'll just write the check and they don't care about, you know, or they really can get in your face and be a nuisance and you don't necessarily want to take their money. And that was kind of the image out there. And so there was some, um, you know, to communicate that we are different um, in the fact that we are approaching this in a professional portfolio fashion was uh, something it took some education and not just for investors, but for entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs expect came in and pitched and saw, thought we'd write the check that day, you know, and then, then when we take six weeks to two months to do diligence and give them an answer, you know, I mean, it was like, we got this reputation. Well, maybe you shouldn't go to them. They're too slow. And we were basically saying, well, that's, that's our process. And um, we can aggregate more money than you could, you can with individual investors out there trying to do it yourself. So um, as the ecosystem grew around the United States, we started co-investing and syndicating with other angel groups. So those professional groups that, that manage money and do you know the professional process, we would syndicate. So it would not be uncommon for me to invest in a deal in Pittsburgh and bring in groups from Ohio, Texas, DC, Virginia, New York to syndicate an investment opportunity. So, but it, we, I mean, we had to slog it out. <laughs> so for, for our listeners who don't know the history, let, let, let's talk a little bit about the history. So you started Blue Tree Allied Angels, which was investing in pre-Series A seed rounds um, and super early stage and then just a few years ago, you guys pivoted uh, and created Blue Tree Venture Fund. Uh, can you talk to us about why the pivot? What did you see that made you pivot? And talk to us a little bit about how that's going. Yeah. Um, when we first started, so when I first started with my partner, we saw an opportunity that was on the rise. You know, whenever you see this the fact that people are getting in more and more involved with investing in startups. 
um, because it's in the media and we have social media, it, even as, as primitive as it was back in 03, <laughs> there was a little bit of that out there. And, um, you know, people started to become familiar with this concept and things grew. And so we, we, we really, in my opinion, rode a wave because it started to become, people became more familiar with it and wanted to join the group. And we would get, instead of asking people to join, they were asking us to join. Um, and so we were serving an open hole, particularly in what is called the flyover states. That is, if you're not in New York, you're not in California or, or Washington, um, the state, those states, or Boston, um, you're considered the flyover part, flyover country where VCs fly over you, right? And money flies over you, and you don't get access to it. And so we saw the ecosystem continue to expand, and it was an underserved market. And so we're addressing an underserved market now. Having done this for like 20 years now. We um, saw that the ecosystem was growing. After the Jobs Act, there was crowdfunding and there was, there was this ability to become an angel investor and not necessarily be accredited and for entrepreneurs to file under Reg D to raise money under what is called 506C instead of B, which means they can do uh, general solicitation. And... Um, so we saw that and, it, and the, the field became very crowded. Um, there was just a group of people over here that a bunch of friends that were creating uh, something. And, you know, it became, got to a point where mix for us, syndication with people who are like-minded gets everybody aligned and rowing the same direction. But if you syndicate from someone with a 506C and then you've got 506B and then you've got this angel group and then you've got this seed fund, the expectations aren't necessarily the same and people aren't rowing in the same direction. So consequently, it can be a dysfunctional board arises or just, you know, or you've got all these people giving advice to different people giving advice to the entrepreneurs that maybe aren't giving such great advice. Um, and we saw it become a field um, that maybe, you know, it's still serving entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs always need capital, but it made it difficult for us to co-invest. And unless again, it was with our, our syndicate partners. On the other hand, we also saw, saw again in the flyover region, primarily the region we serve. So I think Penn State through Chicago is that a lot of companies were doing well, they were starting to scale, they would need money, and we would talk to coastal VCs who would say, well, when they're ready for 20 million, let us know, because we can't invest anything less than 20 million or 10 million. And the companies really, at that point, they, got, they had their seed funding, which is think about you know up to one or 2 million. At this point, they need three to 12 or three to 15 before they can get the attention of the larger VCs. And so when you look at that market, there is a dearth of Series A investors in our region. So we, again, we, we see it in our own portfolio and said, how can we serve our portfolio by, by becoming Series A investors and stay, you know, again, serving the region we know and love. And so that's why we pivoted. It was, we decided to, 
it, it, again, it's an, another underserved market that we're tackling. Now, I do expect others will see what we see, and they already are. And as a matter of fact, many of our colleagues, angel, professionally managed angel groups, have started their own funds, like Q, QC Angels in Cincinnati and North Coast in um, in Cleveland and Vision Tech in Indianapolis and Hyde Park in Chicago and you know, they, they're all seeing the same thing as, as we saw that there was a need for a series for series A funds in our, in, in, and again, in, in our little corner of the world. Mm -hmm. So, so you've, you've just talked about how that series A gap existed. Talk a little bit more about the current startup ecosystem and the challenges or you know, where, where are we today in, in Pittsburgh and the broader flyover, you know, uh, region that you mentioned, Catherine, in terms of just the current market that, that you're seeing as you're out there talking to entrepreneurs? It's a it continues to be a very healthy ecosystem for startups. Um, so the pandemic kind of hurt all of the incubators and co-working spaces that were out there. So a few survived that. And um, so there, so there, and there still remains Innovation Works and Ascender and, um, oh, I don't want to miss anyone. Um, trying to think if I'm, you know, the, the CMU, University Alloy. of Pittsburgh yeah. and, and Duquesne University, and they all have their innovation programs. And, um, and it's so, and um, I'm thinking, um, What's um, Scott Kit Needham's at CMU? Um, uh, Olympus, Project Olympus. Oh. Yeah, Project Olympus. Those are still around and really doing very well. Um, and the attention has moved now from, um, you know, there's always things that become, in, in the venture capital industry, there's boom and bust. And you, you, you've seen it. Um, think about, like, again, 2001, right? 2000, 2001, um, 88 and 89, that caused another one, or yeah, not, no, 2008, 2009, but that wasn't, that wasn't by virtue of the venture capital industry, you know, um, uh, we call it um, creating a bubble, right? Um, they do create their own bubbles. So recently they did the same thing. <laughs> I believe another bubble is going to be created around um, AI and chat GPT yeah. and all that stuff. But you know that's they all do. They they all chase the same thing, um, and um, looking for um, uh, the the one thing that's going to drive you know a three thousand percent return on investment. Um, we're not like that. We're more practical. <laughs> um, you know, you know uh, there are other practical funders. We call them rational VC. That's what we call ourselves, rational VC. Um, but anyways, back to the ecosystem and your question is that now the attention is turned to robotics, which I'm glad to see because it is a capital intensive business. Um, and they've been able to create a lot of media around that. You need a media exposure to attract outside VCs. And so um, that is one thing that we still don't do well in Pittsburgh. Okay. We have this self-effacing way of how we think of ourselves. I don't know. It, it's, we don't do enough bragging about what we do well here. Um, there's not a lot of media about what is happening with our companies here. I'll, I'll give you a good example. 
Um, when you look at one of our companies we did really well with was called Wombat. We invested when they had six members on their team as an angel group. And six years later, that company grew and sold for $225 million to Proofpoint with close to 300 local employees. That's a big story, right? Very little, very little attention to that. And when Proofpoint acquired them, Proofpoint didn't pick up the company and say, you're coming to California. They said, wait a minute, we're keeping you here because there's talent, there's great rent on space, right? Think about overhead costs. Um, compare a salary of a, you know, um, someone that needs to code, does coding and does architecting well, right? Straight out of CMU compared to California. I mean, they just saw that there was every good reason to keep that company here. And there was little to no, you know, social, or, I mean, we had social media around it, but little to no attention to things like that. Those are the great stories about Pittsburgh um, and the kinds of things that are being built here. And they're, you know, they're, they're quietly doing things because there's not much PR around it. I think about Shoe Fitter. Scott, I think you saw Shoe Fitter, right? It was acquired by Amazon. You know, and another good story. Um, you know, um, we can, I mean, I could probably name several, but the whole idea behind that is um, there needs to be um, more media efforts behind it. And we need to, we need to brag. We, 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 we shouldn't be so humble. We need to brag about it. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Catherine. We are the best kept secret that really should not be a secret. Although I do have to say, you, you sound a little bit like my mom who always says that like, I'm, I only talk about the things that I'm struggling with. I never talk about my successes. Right. <laughs> so we, myself and Pittsburgh need to take that uh, to heart. So, Indeed. Um, so our, our, our show is called Startup Impact Radio. And we talk a lot about the impacts uh, that, that you have. And certainly you've had a ton of impact. You've already talked about some of it, but I'm wondering if you would just look back at your career so far and talk about what are the impacts that you're most proud of? Um, I, we, 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 every year we round up, you know, we, we, we tally up our numbers uh, that we've invested to date and having come from this scrappy little, you know, 12 member group to a 80 member plus group that invested at this point between all of our entities, $95 million, um, that, I mean, it's small compared to, you know, the billion dollar VCs and in um you know california and boston but again we're rational vc we look at we look for the wombats of the world right wombat you know the total amount that they raised was something like 15 million that's it uh, you know and again that was rational growth sometimes you should interview if you haven't interviewed joe ferrara the ceo he tells a great story about how he managed cash flow and that is the most critical thing when you're trying to scale your company in a way on minimal on, on minimal resources, right? So that's a great story to tell. But I would say um, one is we got, I guess we, we got people comfortable with angel investing in this region. Um, but it wasn't wasn't 
quite unknown. I have to give credit to, um, there was Tom Canfield and, and um, uh, Don Jones and Jerry um, McGinnis and some of those folks that were early angel investors who really did a great job of helping people understand investing in startup companies. And so they were, they led the way for us. They kind of, you know, created the first, you know, let's say first road down this path. And we kind of came up behind them and showed how we could do it professionally as a group. Um, and so now as you can see, everybody's comfortable with angel investing, you know, they're, they're, they're starting to, you know, and, and realizing this should be, you know, a piece of your, um, your total overall holdings, right? Your, you know, all your assets, everybody understands that, you know, this could be a nice piece of your, the way you build wealth, right? It's wealth creation. Um, and so you think about the benefit of that. And I said the word wealth creation, um, not only are we creating wealth for the investors, but we're in creating wealth for the employees. And that makes a world of difference as well. So um, when I think about the impact, I, I wish I would have kept track. <laughs> How many employees, you know, maybe can we go back and do the research maybe someday. But, you know, when you're too busy investing and monitoring and raising capital, it's, you know, it's kind of, you know, hard to take some time to do that research. But, you know, we're very proud of the fact that we've had a meaningful impact on the economy and. Um, and we've created wealth, not only for our investors, but for many employees as well. Absolutely. That's, that's probably my favorite thing about being an entrepreneur is creating jobs for people. Uh, that really resonates with me, Catherine. And I have to say Joe Ferrara is an effortlessly awesome skier. I've skied with him a few times <laughs> and, and we totally do need to have him on our show. So great yeah. suggestion yeah. there. There isn't anything he doesn't do well, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And just the just the impact you guys were part of of all those jobs that Wombat was created is is just amazing. So thank you. Um, My only regret is impact. I joined I joined Blue Tree literally the meeting after Wombat presented, and I, uh. I I kept thinking I'll get in eventually. But as Catherine said, they were so capital efficient that I never got a chance to actually get in it. So mm -hmm. I I did miss that one sadly. Yeah, Catherine, you've used the word several times now that you know, to try to distinguish. Part of your investment philosophy, this idea of your rational investors, you could just expand a little bit more about what that means to you and Blue Tree overall and the fund and so forth. Yeah, one of the things I tell people is how we, you know, we all develop and grow based on what we've learned over time, right? Um, and so I think about all the scars that we're wearing and how we learn from them. Shame on us if we don't, right? So when we first in, you know, in started investing, so let me, I'll tell you the story and then I'll tell you why we call it rational versus, you know, irrational. Um, when we first started, we took a look at this and said, we need to have, you know, some, you know, to diversify our portfolio, we need to have some life sciences and we need to have some tech. So that's kind of how we first started and figured out how do we balance those because life sciences is long ter longer term, longer tail, 14, 15 years, and tech can have an exit within four, five, six years um, and, and generate returns. So we 
first I thought that's how we were going to balance it. And we were kind of like a VC. In other words, we were swinging for the fences. And that is we had investing in life sciences in that peptologics or, um, you know, uh, those kinds of companies that will produce, you know, uh, high return. I mean, I'm not talking about a 10x. I'm talking about 100x plus, 300x plus. Yeah, we're hoping for a thousand. <laughs> you know, so uh, so anyways, it you know, what we learned, though, is when you're managing money over a short period of time, like most people are starting to expect returns in 10 years, you've got that window. And that's kind of been ingrained in the pattern of most VC funds. You know, they're usually 10 years. Now I see them with terms of 12 and 14 years. But most people become to expect to see their funds returned in 10 years. So when we did, we learned from that and said, okay, as we, we need to then to drive IRR to our investors in, you know, internal rate of return rather than ROI, we need to focus on shorter term kinds of companies and, you know, that they can get to an exit more efficiently. Um, and we kind of dropped investing in consumer products. We dropped investing in um, life sciences. And while we continue to support the companies that we're in, especially when they're doing well, we, we, that is one thing that we do that some some groups don't don't didn't do for a while. They didn't do follow on investing. They just did the first round. We continue to invest in companies that were doing well. So, anyways, <clears throat> we decided that because there's such rich intellectual property again think about the universities that we serve in the in the in our footprint on software enabled technology so again cmu right northwestern you know we can name several right case western some others but it came it made sense for us so that our fund that we were going to that we were going to raise this this it's called Blue Tree VC um, had to focus on software enabled technology. Then we, we what we did was we kind of took a look at what industries were going to have a need a particular need for improved efficiencies. So we looked at supply chain. We looked at um, you know electricity in the grid. We looked at um, data management, we, you know, those kinds of things. And, and we said, what are going to be the real problems they have to solve over the next 10 years, right? Five years, really. And kind of honed in on just those kinds of things. So we, and the way we looked at AI and ML is AI and ML, even back when we first launched the fund just last year, is, is it's going to be part of anything and everything. So, you know, whether, you know, so we kind of think that's very generic. We're not looking for something that's generic. We're looking for them to solve a really unique problem that might include AI and ML, right? Um, it might be part of the solution. Um, so it, it helps us be a bit more focused. And when I say rational, we're not, we're looking, when we look at each company, we say, okay, What's the probability of getting a 10x return in five to six years? 
And that's it. That's that's the that's what we're looking at at 10x. And and if four of those companies do that out of 20 that we invest in, you know, we'll 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 have delivered, you know, to our investors. So that's what we mean by rational. Um, we're not being the VC where you throw money, lots of money at them, and hope they figure it out and and they'll pivot and pivot and pivot. We're at this time, we're in, at the time we're investing now as, as BTVC, it's not in anticipation of demand, it's in response to demand. And so we have a little proof in the pudding and we also want the founders to know who they're building the company for. In other words, they're gonna either merge with someone or be acquired, that kind of thing. You know, and that's that's our focus. And so we're not trying to be the one that's going to invest in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in Duolingo and, you know, and give them five years to figure it out and spend lots of money. Um, we can't we say we've got a small amount of comp a, we're a small fund. We have small amount of money and we have to be rational about it. And we expect, you know, the companies in which we invest be Joe Ferraris of the world. Mm -hmm. Nice. <laughs> nice. And so, we help them. I mean, the whole idea is to help them. I mean, we don't, I mean, we, we don't invest and not expect to be partners because we still know it's early stage and it's hands-on. So um, it, it's, it's a rational approach to consider the fact that you must provide resources to your, in your companies in which you're investing besides money. Yeah. I've always, appreciated the strategic approach to, to, you know, working alongside the, the companies that you're investing in. And I always yeah. thought that, that that seemed like a no brainer, but it's, you know, there aren't a lot of people that are doing that. And so, uh, you know, congratulations on, on, on pulling that off. And I do think that that's led to a lot of the success that you guys have had. So, yeah. um, you Thank know, speaking you. of success and we, we could talk about success all day long cause it's fun. Um, but I have found that, you know, from the guests that we've interviewed on this podcast, that I tend to learn the most when people talk about the failures that they've had and, and how they've been able to overcome them. So can you talk to us about, you know, some failures, failures that you might have experienced over your career? What did you learn from them and how do you do things differently based on those? Well, my, <clears throat> my first lessons come from my early years when you have a bad boss and you say, you, you say, I never want to treat people that way. It's that to me is the biggest lesson you learn is that um, you walk away from that saying, you know, when I do something on my own, or when I become a manager, or when I become a CEO, or whatever it is, I'm not going to do that to my, to my, to my staff or my associates, you know, so, um, you know, you know, I guess I would say that, um, you know, I, I watch how performance is impacted by the lack of respect for the hard work people do. And I just, I think that's really um, a critical thing to carry forward in, in anything you do, whether it's, you know, you're working on a committee at your church or you're working on a, you know, a, a nonprofit with people, I just show respect all the time for people, regardless, you don't know, you don't know where they're coming from, right? And so just be respectful. Um, the other thing is, I would say my my biggest lesson is that that execution risk is the biggest risk, and it's also the hardest risk to manage. Um, people will be people. There will be personality issues. 
um, and personality issues sink things faster than strategic issues and or strategic concerns. And um, I think paying attention to chemistry and human dynamics is so essential. And, you know, and I have to tell you, I mean, I used to think, gee, you know, um, you, you just hire the right person and it should just work because they have the right skill set. Well, they may not have the right chemistry. And that can happen on boards as well. You can get on a board and um, I won't name companies, but sometimes you'll be on boards where egos, everybody has to impress each other as if, you know, I know more than you or um, I put the most money in, therefore I my voice should be the biggest, um, even though it's the least value added, um, you know, that's the thing that is the the most complicated thing to deal with. And when you're on a board where you're serving with people who are not serving the company well, it's a challenge how to work with them to get them to serve the company well. Um, and especially when you're dealing with huge egos who think they know all the answers or have all the answers. And so um, that, that to me is... It, a challenge I still don't know how to get over. I mean, I, I, I still, I mean, I work at that. I read, you know, I, I read human behavior books still after all these years trying to figure out um, how, you know, you know, I took all the OD classes when I got my master's, you know, and, and, I, you know, it's still always a challenge somewhere. And, um, and I guess I will tell one story is I was the only one on a board um, again, the only female, and um, I was the one that is objecting to hiring a new CEO. We needed a new CEO. There's no doubt about that, and the CEO said that him himself or herself. Um, and um, so we went through the process, but there was this bro culture. I don't know what else to call it, guys. Sorry. <laughs> it was this bro culture. It's, he's so cool. He's, you know, and it, I, I don't want to say anything more about his background because that'll give a hint about what company it probably is. And it was like, but we interviewed this other person who brings the experience and, you know, and led a company to an exit and is more operational focused and, you know, and, and more, you know, and, and, and much more organized and, you know, but, oh, this person's personality is going to raise all kinds of money. So I was the one they object, but they wanted to have a consensus on the board and pushed me into saying, I should agree. I'm like, no, you have a majority, you know, you got what you want. Mm -hmm. I just don't mm -hmm. think he's, he, she's the best candidate. So, um, you know, nine months later I was right, but, um, they had to replace again. So, um, you know, it's just, um, you know, understanding and, and what, here's what I took away from that is I'm pretty much a straight shooter. Should I approach people when I'm in a, like a big bro culture like that better by asking questions than stating my own opinion. And so I went back and learned from that and came back to, 
to my books and you know, said, mm-hmm. you know, and when we had our retreat with the team, with the, the, the Blue Tree VC team um, recently, um, this was the case study I brought in because I said, you know, it, it often, you know, we have to not just point the fingers at here's the dynamics here. Well, obviously I'm not going to change the dynamics, you know, just because I'm, you know, but what kinds of questions can I ask that would get people to see what I'm seeing in their inability to probably meet the objectives or meet the criteria the company needs. And so we went through some exercises like that. And I said, then that prepares them, I prepares the team, should you be in that situation again, is learn how to ask the right questions. And not necessarily think that you're, you know, because you're being a straight shooter that you're going to change anyone's mind. You know, so. Mm -hmm. I've been in that kind of situation as a lone voice on a board where you don't have any position power to change minds. You have to influence with questions or, and that is difficult. You were just evoking some emotion there of ever remembering that. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I mean, it just, you know, and not that it would have been effective, but could I have been more effective? I don't know. And had I tried those questions and, yeah. um, and generally we are, I mean, generally when you're asking good questions, you're more effective at effectuating change. Wow. Great advice. Um, let's, we'll bring this in for a landing, Catherine. I'm sure we could talk for another three hours. Um, want to respect your time. We always like to end the episode asking people about what their favorite drink is. It could be an alcoholic drink or non-alcoholic, whatever, whatever your preference, what, what, it was, what would your favorite drink be in this summer of 23 in Pittsburgh? I only have one actually two favorite drinks and um, it never changes no matter what season it is. It is a single malt scotch, usually, you know, on, you know, with less peat. Um, So think of, you know, of things like, um, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think of um, Belvedere or um, um, I don't, I'm not crazy about blends. And so it's, it's a sipping cocktail, no matter what. So, um, hmm. not, where's your favorite place to have a single much single malt scotch. That's not home. too peaty. Friday home. nights, <laughs> Friday nights, Friday nights, home, quiet, peace, sitting by nice. the fireside. <laughs> 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 so I know, I know we're in the more fun part of the interview, but I do have one more question. Do do you have, um, do you guys still have Blue Tree Venture Capital open and are you guys still raising capital for oh, that? Oh, yes, we are. Thank you for bringing that up, Scott. We are raising capital. Our minimum um, is uh, 250000 um, and uh, the fund will close for additional capital at the end of this year, December. So we are still looking for new investors. We are also talking to institutional investors right now, which is exciting. We just got... Um, uh, two one million dollar commitments um, recently, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, so when you reach yeah, your final sure. close, we need to get together and have a single malt scotch at your house, so that you're in the place you want to be having it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> you can oh, hold me to great. it. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review. It all helps. 
You can follow me on LinkedIn at Joel Reed OA and follow Scott Tobe on LinkedIn at Scott Tobe SFP. And Catherine, if people want to learn more about your fund or, or follow you, what, what would the best way to do that be? BlueTreeVC.com. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. You're an amazing guest, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.